0: Elisha goes up to the city of Bethel, and there's this gang of young men that comes out of town and starts harassing Elisha, and Elisha calls down a curse on the young men, and what happens? Yeah, a couple bears come out of the woods, and we're told those bears maul 42 of the young men. So, So what's being made very clear is that God is now working through Elisha. So the people are seeing it, the other uh, sons, what they're called the sons of the prophets, the sort of prophets in training are seeing it. All these other people are seeing that Elisha is now the man that God's working through. But guess who hasn't seen it yet? The kings haven't seen it yet. So Elisha up to this point hasn't had any interaction with the king of Israel. And and that's what's going to get remedied in 2 Kings chapter 3. One other thing before we start reading. There was an important verse that sort of sets the scene for this way back. Look at the very first verse in 2 Kings. This was sort of a throwaway verse because he mentions it and then he doesn't go back to it. But look at 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 1. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now if you were just reading through this, that would seem like a strange verse because he writes it. But then he doesn't say anything else about Moab in chapter 1 or all of chapter 2. Well, that's finally going to come back on the scene in chapter 3. So the situation is Moab is a country to the east of Israel, like to the east of the Jordan, to the east of the Dead Sea. And for a long time, Moab has been subjugated by Israel. They're like a vassal state. Israel has beat them. They were a thorn in Israel's side. Israel conquered them in battle. And once they conquered them, they required that they give them tribute every year. Maybe a simple way to think about it would be it's like a, Uh, A a kid gets in a fight with another kid at school and he beats him up. And so after he beats him up, every day he makes him bring his lunch money and give him his lunch money. Now that he's beat him, he requires his lunch money every day. Well, that's basically what Israel had done with Moab. Okay, They went down and conquered Moab and as a result, they required that Moab pay them tribute every year. But when Ahab died, what did Moab decide? We're not giving you our lunch money anymore. Because the way it worked in monarchies like Israel in the ancient world, the the most susceptible point for a country was when there was a transition of power. So when one king died and another king was coming to the throne, that was when a country was at its weakest. So when Ahab died, that's when Moab decided, we're not paying you anymore. You might remember I mentioned when we read that verse a long time ago now. But I told you that archaeologists had actually found a big stone in Moab they call it the Moabite stone. It's a big stone that actually has this, this story engraved on it. It's, it's, a, it's written by the Moabites. It's written, in fact, by the guy who's mentioned in Second Kings 3, the king of Moab, this king named Misha. And it tells this story of of Moab being subjugated by Israel and Moab having to pay tribute and Moab finally rebelling against Israel. It tells this same story from the perspective of the Moabites. And they they found that, and I I say that just again to remind you, it's another piece of archaeological evidence that supports exactly the story that we're given in the Bible. Okay, so Moab rebelled, we're told that. Well, chapter 3 is going to show us the result of Moab rebelling. That's what we're going to look at tonight. So everybody back up to speed on where we are in 2 Kings. Okay, let's read. 2 Kings chapter 3, let's read verses 1 through 3. It says, Now Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now here's what's happening. First three verses are just kind of resetting the pieces on the chessboard. This is reminding us who the different power players are. So who is king over the southern kingdom of Judah at this point? King Jehoshaphat, and we'll talk more about him in just a minute. Who is now king over the northern kingdom of Israel? It's a new name. It's this king named Jehoram. Now, your, your Bible might actually translate it Joram, because there's a, that's just a variant of the same name. And it does that because it can get confusing because there's, in a little while, there's going to come a king in Judah by the very same name. So there's going to be another King Jehoram, a different guy who's going to be king of the southern kingdom, and so it can be a little tricky to keep them separate, okay? But Jehoram now becomes king. Who is Jehoram the son of? Ahab. Now, do you remember what happened? Ahab died in battle. When Ahab died in battle, who became king? This is back in 2 Kings chapter 1. He had a son named Ahaziah who became king. But Ahaziah only reigned for just a couple years. Why? What happened to Ahaziah? You remember his story? He's the king who fell through the lattice work at the palace. So he's leaning on a banister or something at the royal palace. He falls through and he ends up dying from the fall. Well, now his brother, another one of the sons of King Ahab, Jehoram, becomes king. And what are we told about Jehoram? What kind of man was he? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He's an evil king, but... He's not quite as evil as King Ahab. That's a pretty low bar, isn't it? That's like being the, the tallest man in Munchkin land. It's, it's not as asking very much. He is not as evil as, as King Ahab was, but he's evil. And it's a reminder, there, there are, when it comes to behavior, there are degrees of evil. Now, that's not true when it comes to condition. So think about what, what is the doctrine of total depravity when it's describing mankind's condition? What does total depravity mean? Every part of us has been affected by the fall. Does does that mean that every person apart from Jesus behaves as badly as they could possibly behave? No. Why is that? If if I mean the Bible's picture of mankind apart from Jesus is that we are naturally evil, we're dead to God, we love darkness and hate the light. Well, then why is it that every person doesn't behave? completely and constantly in the most grossly evil ways? Well, what's that? Constrained by the law? Yeah, God has built certain restraints in to restrain evil. So God has given every one of us, what do we have internally? He gives us a conscience. So he's, Romans 2 says that he writes his law on our hearts so that we actually feel guilty when we do wrong things. Why did God give us a conscience? Well, in part, to restrain evil. God also gives us family structure. And one of the things families are supposed to do is to teach morality and to punish, punish evil in their kids. Well, that's meant to restrain evil. God gives us civil government. What is civil government supposed to, do, supposed to do? Civil government is supposed to restrain evil. It's supposed to have moral laws and enforce those moral laws and punish evildoers. But, but do you see how all of that assumes something? The fact that God teaches parents to disciple their kids and to punish evil in their kids and the fact that God sees the need to give us a conscience and the fact that God needs, sees the need to give us civil government, what does that all imply about the human heart? That the human heart is prone to evil. So God is building in all of these layers to try to restrain it. So I'm saying all that just to make the point. Our condition is as bad as it could be apart from Christ. You can't get any worse than dead. And that's how the Bible describes us. We are spirit... In fact, um, there's a story about the guy who uh, mentored R.C. Sproul. His name was John Gerstner. And on one occasion, John Gerstner was preaching a sermon at a church. And he was preaching a sermon on total depravity, man's condition apart from Christ. And at the end of the sermon, there was a lady who had been there who was highly offended by his sermon because of how he was describing us apart from Christ. She, she said that it made her feel bad. And so after the sermon, she went up and was giving him a piece of her mind about how bad his sermon was. And she said, your sermon made me feel this big. And much to her surprise, Gerstner shot back, that's too big. And what he meant was, if you really got what the Bible says about our condition, what the Bible has to say about us apart from Christ leaves us flat in the dust. There's nothing good about us. Our condition could not be any worse. But our behavior is not as bad. Okay, so there's degrees of evil in how that is manifested. So what was Ahab's sin that Jehoram didn't take part in? Baal worship. I mean, uh, Ahab and Jezebel went full throttle toward bringing false idols into Israel and promoting false idols. So Jehoram doesn't do that. He even takes down one of the monuments to Baal that had been put up. But what does Jehoram still embrace? That's it. What does it call it in the text? The sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You remember Jeroboam? He comes up over and over again in the story. Because Jeroboam was the guy. Jeroboam said, we'll still worship Yahweh. We're just going to worship Yahweh in our own way. We'll build a golden calf to help us worship Yahweh. And we'll make our own temple. And we'll ordain our own priesthood. Maybe here's a good way to think about it. So the sin of Ahab was breaking the first commandment, worshiping other gods. The sin of Jeroboam and Jehoram was breaking the second commandment. The second commandment forbids worshiping God in improper ways. Right, We're not free to worship God on our own terms and to approach God in our own way. And that's what Jehoram and Jeroboam did, is they said, well, I know God says don't build images, we're going to build an image to help us worship God, and we're going to worship God with an altar, and we're going to do it our own way. Well, that's Jehoram, okay? He's this evil guy, not quite as evil as his father, but an evil guy who's come to the throne of Israel. Any questions about Jehoram? That's the most you've ever heard, I bet, in a church service on Jehoram. Okay, well, let's keep reading then. Picking up in verse 4. It says, Now Mesha, king of Moab was a sheep breeder. And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So king Jehoram went out, at, went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat king of Judah saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And Jehoshaphat said, I'll go up. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. And then he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay, so we're back to Moab's rebellion. So Moab says, we're not giving you our lunch money anymore. So what's Israel going to do now? Well, if if you're the bully who says, if you don't give me your lunch money, I'm going to punch you, and you don't give me the lunch money, you better punch, right? Well, that's what they're going to do. So Israel's going to say, if you're not going to give us tribute anymore, we're going to come make sure you give us our tribute. And so King Jehoram decides he's going to, by the way, I don't know what, what this image keeps coming to mind. The best episode of Andy Griffin is where that happens with Andy, uh, with uh, Opie. Where if, you don't, if you have boys, you need to watch that episode. It's where this bully, I don't know how we end up with Andy Griffin, but it's where this bully keeps taking his money, and he's afraid because he's going to punch him if he won't not give him his money, and Andy has to teach him a lesson about there's worse things than getting punched. And sometimes it's okay to, anyway, there's a whole story about boys that boys need to hear in that episode. Anyway, um, back to the story of Jehoram. Okay, so he says, they say we're not going to give you our money, so he's going to go to war to make sure they keep paying him tribute but he doesn't want to go to war alone so who does he ask to help him king jehoshaphat the king of the southern nation he does how often does this problem pop up with jehoshaphat jehoshaphat no just to back up he's a good king he's a godly man he loves the lord but what is the problem that jehoshaphat struggles with over and over again he's saying no And in particular, he keeps aligning himself with evil people. Do you remember the story back in 1 Kings where he made an alliance with King Ahab and what was the result of that alliance? Jehoshaphat almost got killed in battle because of it. We were also told that Jehoshaphat made an alliance with one of Ahab's sons to start a shipping industry. And as a result, the whole thing was destroyed. It all fell apart. We've also found out that Jehoshaphat allowed his son to marry Ahab's daughter. And we're going to find out a few chapters from now what a disaster that proved to be. So Jehoshaphat was a, a good, godly man who showed no discernment in the people that he aligned himself with, and it led to constant trouble in his life. Now, just just ask a practical question. Is it possible for somebody to genuinely love the Lord, be a genuine follower of Jesus, And still constantly get themselves into trouble because they keep aligning with people who don't know and love the Lord. It absolutely is. If you have somebody like that in your life, Jehoshaphat is a wonderful example. He showed no discernment in the people that he uh, allied himself with. And it was constantly causing problems in his life. So he agrees that he's going to go to war, fight this battle with Ahab. Let me just give you, I don't know if you'll be able to see this map but just to help you get a picture. Can y'all see that? You see where it says Samaria on the left side of that? And then Moab is on the right bottom part of it. So if, if you're going from Samaria to attack Moab, the simplest way would be just to cross the Jordan River to the north and move down that way. But Moab has a lot more, or had a lot more fortified cities in the northern part. And so what Jehoram decides to do is he's, the arrow shows their line of attack. He's going to swoop down all the way south of the Dead Sea and they're going to attack Moab from the south rather than attack Moab from the north. So he gets his armies in Samaria, marches south, picks up Jehoshaphat and the armies of Judah. They march further south and Edom is a vassal state of Judah at this point. So the Edomite army and the Edomite king join in with them as well. And so now you've got three kings, all three of their armies, marching toward Moab, looking for a surprise attack in the less fortified part of the country. Okay, everybody got that scene in your mind? There's just one problem with the direction that they're going. What's the problem? Here we go, pick up in verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom... And they marched on that roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord? Lord is Yahweh. No prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah and Jehoshaphat said the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Israel went down to him. So what's the problem that they run into? This is a long hot dry trip from Israel all the way around to Moab. So imagine you're marching now with three armies in tow. Judah's army, Israel's army, Edom's army. You're marching south of the Dead Sea looking for this surprise attack. You're running low on resources, but you know, you know, there's a brook at the border of Edom and Moab. So you can always restock your water supplies. You just got to make it a little bit further, but you get to the border of Edom and Moab and the brook is dry. Well, now you're in trouble, right? There's no well-drilling techniques they can use. So what good is an army going to be if it is exhausted and dehydrated? Have you ever been dehydrated before? I mean, really dehydrated? You, you can hardly raise an arm when you're dehydrated. So what good is, a, is an army going to do that is dehydrated and hasn't had water in days? Well, they're going to be easy picking for the Moabites. They're going to be in trouble. And so what does Jehoram, the king of Israel, do? Did you notice in the text? And the king of Israel, that's Jehoram, verse 10. The king of Israel said, alas, for the Lord has called these three three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. What does Jehoram, the king of Israel, do? He blames God. God has brought us together and God is turning us over to the Moabites. Now what's interesting about that? Well, what's interesting is Jehoram has shown no interest at all in God up to this point. It was very common in Israel for Israel's kings to inquire of a prophet before they went to war. They would generally call for a prophet to come and get the prophet to inquire of God. Should we go to battle? How should we go to battle? Jehoram has done nothing like that. He has shown no interest in God at all, no desire to obey God at all. But when things go bad, guess what Jehoram does? I can't believe God has put us in this spot. Right? Do, you, do you ever experience that or know anybody like that in your life that has no interest in following the Lord at all, but when things go bad, it's immediately God's fault that things went bad in their lives? That's, that's where Jehoram is. Okay, So he's beginning to complain that God has put them in this position. But then Jehoshaphat pipes up. And what does Jehoshaphat say? This is Remember, this is the guy who really knows the Lord, really loves the Lord. And Jehoshaphat says... Is there not a prophet of the Lord here so we can inquire of God? Now, this is just under the better late than never category. So they should have done this earlier, but at least at this point, Jehoshaphat is finally the voice of reason in this situation. And Jehoshaphat is saying, hey, it's not too late. Let's seek the Lord. Let's see if God will help us here. And that's always a good rule to follow, right? It's never, I'll say it this way. When the Bible says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, That's always true. So when I find myself in a situation where I've made a mess of things by not following the Lord, the best thing I can do always is humble myself before God. Humble myself, admit my sin, look to God and trust in God for mercy. That's what Jehoshaphat's doing. Hey, let's inquire of God now. And somebody says, yeah, I think Elisha is here. But did you notice how they described Elisha? What was the phrase they used to describe him? Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. What was Elisha known as at this point? That's what servants did. In other words, he's known as the servant who had traveled around with Elijah and had washed his hands and had cleaned him up and had carried his bags. and That's what a servant did. And so up to this point in the story, this is just a good reminder, up to this point in the story, we haven't been told that Elisha, Other, I'm talking about before chapter 2, Elisha for years had traveled with Elijah. He hadn't preached sermons. He hadn't performed miracles. For years, all Elisha had done is servant work. He had just faithfully served Elijah, done all these behind the scenes, menial tasks, caring for Elijah. He did that for years before God ever elevated him to this position of prophet. Okay, So they're they're now going to turn to Elisha. So these Three kings go running off to try to get help from Elisha. So let's see how their encounter with Elisha goes. Verses 13 and 14. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel. This is Elisha as the three kings are coming his way. And then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So these three kings come walking toward Elisha, and how does Elisha respond? He lights into him. No greetings, no niceties, no pleasantries, no small talk. He sees Jehoram coming and immediately says, what have I to do with you? In other words, what business could we possibly have together? You and I don't have anything in common because Jehoram is an idolater. He's shown no interest in God. And it's like Elisha is going, why are you coming to see me now? So for, for Jehoram, God was like the fire extinguisher in the restaurant that says, break in case of emergency. That was God to Jehoram. He had no interest in knowing anything about God, but this is the emergency. So he just wants to break the glass and for God to get him out of this situation. And Elisha is going, there's, there's a bigger problem going on here, right? This is always the case. Our tendency is we want to come to God to fix the surface level issues. Lord, I need you to fix this financial issue. Lord, I need you to fix this uh, job issue. Lord, I need you to fix, right? All this surface level stuff. But God is first most interested in the deeper heart issue. So for Jehoram, more than Jehoram needed water, Jehoram needed to repent. And so this is Elisha confronting this king going, why, what, Jehoram, Why, why is it that you're coming to God now? And what does Jehoram say again? He says the same thing that he said earlier. The Lord has brought these three kings together to give them over to the Moabites. Again, he's looking at a situation that he got himself in, and what's he doing? He's blaming God for it. This is, surely you know this about yourself, this is a natural human characteristic. We all are by nature, you ready for it? We all are by nature blame shifters. We look for somewhere else to pass the buck to. How quickly do you see that in the Bible? As soon as sin enters the world and God confronts Adam about his sin, what's Adam's response? That woman gave it to him. In fact, what does he really say? God, it's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. And Lord, if it's not her fault, it's your fault that I'm in this situation. Okay, well, that's, that's Jehoram here. He had made all these decisions apart from God, ignoring God. And now he's in the situation and it's God's fault. It's God's sovereignty that's put him here. I wrote down a quote by Ralph Davis that I liked. He wrote, Beware of folks who cite the sovereignty of God in order to excuse or accuse, but not to worship and adore. I like that quote. Jehoram is, he's going to talk about God's sovereignty only to excuse his own sin. God's sovereignty is an excuse for him. It's it's not something that he bends his knee before God in awe about. So they're coming to him to, Try to get some help. And Elisha, before we read this, Elisha says to Jehoram, I would not even help you unless... And what's the reason he's going to help Jehoram? That's right. He's going to help him only because he is with Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, remember now, the southern kingdom stayed true to the line of Davidic kings. That was the line God had appointed. Jehoshaphat was in the line of David. He's a Davidic king. He's a righteous king. And Elisha says, the only reason I'm going to help you is because you are standing here connected to Jehoshaphat. And I just got to pause and say, it's just, that scene is a wonderful picture of salvation. Because I don't know where you see yourself in this story. You and I are not the Jehoshaphats. You and I are the Jehorams. We're the ones who have broken the first commandment and the second commandment and every other commandment you can find in the Bible we have over and over again ignored god and embraced idols and live for ourselves and just like jehoram there is no reason standing on our own why god should ever bless us why god should ever show us favor the only hope we have is to be connected to the right king okay god just like just like jehoshaphat there would come another king in the line of david right much greater than jehoshaphat the ultimate king the messiah Jesus. And the way the Bible's gonna say it now is the only way that sinners like us can ever be accepted by God, can ever know the blessings of God, is we have to be connected to that King. Our only hope comes in Jesus being the one who represents us. Okay, ma- make sure you get that on the gospel. Our hope in the gospel, our hope for as Christians is not that we're gonna clean ourselves up enough. I'm gonna get rid of this bad stuff and get rid of this group and stop doing this on the weekends and then I'll be good enough that I'll be presentable to God. That's not the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is all of God's blessings are available only to those who are connected to Jesus in faith. That's why one of my favorite hymns is Before the Throne of God Above because it's reflecting this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me to depart. You see what that hymn's saying? It's saying that our confidence that we're accepted before God is tied entirely to the fact that we are represented before God by Jesus. It's our connection to the right king that earns us God's favor. That's what, in essence, Elisha is saying to Jehoram here. So he's going to help because Jehoshaphat's there. So here's what he's going to do. Pick up in verse 15. This is Elisha still speaking. He says, but now bring me a musician. And then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And Elisha said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He'll also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So what is Elisha's promise from God? That God's God's going to meet their need. God's going to give them water in in apparently a miraculous way. Some unusual way because he says God's going to give you water but you're never going to see a drop of rain. You're never going to hear a single gust of wind from a storm. But God is going to fill the valley with water. But, he adds, that's too small of a thing. It's too small for God to give you water. God's also going to meet your bigger problem. God's going to give you victory over the Moabites. So you're asking for water. God's going to give you water And some. He's also going to be with you so that you have victory over the enemy that you're getting ready to face. But God's not going to do this around them or apart from them. There's something that God commands them to do. What are they commanded to do in the story? God commands them to go out into the valley and to fill it up with ditches. So so God is going to meet their need, but there's a command. There's something that God tells them to do with it. This is often what the Christian life looks like. Just to make sure you get it, there was a view called quietism or kinism that, that makes it still makes inroads in Christianity sometimes. And the whole idea of it is the key thing in Christianity is just let go and let God. You just sit back and let God do it all. But that's not the mantra of Christianity. The mantra of Christianity is trust and obey. We trust God and His promises and everything He's done for us in Jesus. And now inside of that, we're called to obey, to live within God's commandments. Even though, like digging ditches, most of God's commandments are not flashy things. right? How how flashy is digging a ditch? How much education do you need to dig a ditch? Do you need 25 years of experience before you can start digging a ditch? Now, it's about as straightforward. Now, it's not easy But it's simple. It's about as straightforward as it gets. That's a great picture of what the Christian life now looks like. Okay, We're trusting in God. They're not providing water here. They're having to trust God to do it. But now they're going to obey God's commands. And most of God's commands to us, you don't need a seminary degree. You don't need a PhD to understand what it means to trust and obey God. Okay, They're trusting and obeying. And God is going to step in and meet this need. Simple command. And by the way, how many ditches are they supposed to dig? They're supposed to fill the valley full of ditches. So what's God going to do? How's this need going to be met? Well, keep reading. Verse 20, here's how it's answered. Now, it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. Now, here's what's happening. Edom, we're in the wilderness here. Edom, this wilderness is surrounded by mountains. And what could happen is huge rainstorms could move into the mountains where you couldn't even see the storm, drop loads of water, and all of the water from that rain could come rushing down the mountain through the wadis in this valley, and you could have, almost in the valley, instant flash floods from these rainstorms in the mountains. This is, by the way, still how they irrigate fields in this area. They'll dig ditches around these wadis, and when rainstorms will come and the water washes through, they fill up their ditches and hold the water, and that's how they, they irrigate. So God is saying... While you're sleeping, God sends this rainstorm. They don't even see. They don't even hear. But the next morning, this water comes rushing from this rainstorm across this valley. And by the way, the water can come rushing through and it can be dry again in a couple hours. But this water comes rushing through even though they never even saw the rain. And all the ditches they have dug, guess what it does with the water? They now have means to hold this water as it comes rushing through in these flash floods. And they they now have means to rehydrate to get the water that they so desperately need. Okay, So God has met their need, and, and how much water are they going to get? As, as much as they dug ditches. If they dug two or three ditches, guess how much water they have? Just a little bit. But if they did what he said and filled the valley with ditches, how much water do they have? They have lots and lots and lots of water. So now they have water. God has met their need, which is exactly what he said he would do. One of the things that pops up again and again and again in first and second Kings is what God says is always trustworthy. If God says it, believe it. If God says it, you can take it to the bank. God says, I'm going to meet your need and give you water in this way. And he does. Okay. But that raises a question. Why does God do it this way? Why not just send a rainstorm right overhead and drop water on them right where they are? Why send it where nobody even knows a storm hit? Well, because there's something else God is doing through the way he sends rain. Look at verse 21. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered. And they stood at the border. And then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water... And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them. And they entered their land, killing the Moabites. And then they destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees, but they left the stones of Kir Hariseth intact. However, the, sling, the slingers surrounded it and attacked it. You see the other thing that happens because of the way God sends the water? So in the meantime, the Moabites here, hey, three armies are together and they're coming to attack. And so the Moabites quickly muster all the military-age men, and they go out first thing in the morning to face Israel on the battlefield. They crest the hill, and they look down on all these armies, and they see liquid. In fact, in the early morning, Edom, by the way, the the word Edom means red because the soil in Edom has a red hue. I, I grew up in middle Georgia, and middle Georgia has red clay everywhere, right? There's a red hue in it. So they come over the crest, and they see liquid that looks red in the early morning light, and they think they've attacked each other. These three armies have turned on each other, and what we see is blood. Now, think about why they, why they think that. Well, because in their mind, it can't be water because it hasn't rained there. It's been dry in this valley for weeks. There's no way it's water that they're looking at. So they assume that what we're looking at is blood. And so they're, they're ready to swoop down and enjoy the spoils of war, run down and loot and pillage. So they go rushing down, ready to fill their arms with stuff. And guess what they find? They find an Israelite army that is rehydrated and refreshed and ready to rumble, and they run right into the teeth of an army that is ready to fight, and they are ransacked on the battlefield so that Israel pursues them. They destroy cities and ruin fields and stop up wells on the way until finally the Moabites have to retreat to this walled city of Kir Haraseth. And God, again, has done exact, God had promised not only that he would give water, God had almost also promised that he would give them victory over Moab. God has done both things that he promised here, right? But there's one more um, disturbing scene, I guess you would call it. The last two verses. Look at this last scene. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom. But they could not. And then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. Now this is a, kind of a gruesome last scene. So you have the king of Moab who's retreated to this walled city. And he knows, he's cornered, he knows ancient kings, when they get caught in battle, they're not treated very well. And so he's going to do everything he can to break out. So first, he gets 700 of his best soldiers, and they're going to try to break through the the wall of Israelite soldiers at the weak spot, which is where the Edomite army was. And it doesn't work. They get repelled. And so what's his next step? Well, he gets his son, the the next one in line for the throne, and he takes his son on, on top of the wall of the city so everyone can see it, and he, he sacrifices his own son. The god of the Moabites was a god named Chemosh. And from Moabite writings, it's clear that anytime something bad happened in Moab, they thought it meant their god, Chemosh, was mad. And so he is sacrificing his son, hoping that it will satiate Chemosh's anger. And maybe Chemosh will relent and he'll spare their lives. And so he kills his own son. And, and when it says in the text... There was great indignation against Israel. That word against, that preposition could be translated upon, and I think that's the best way to read it, that when Israel sees it, there's indignation upon Israel. It's like the Israelites are aghast at what they see. They are horrified at what they see, and they're so disturbed by it that they just break camp, stop what they're doing, and they all go back home. This guy has just slaughtered his own son to try to appease his God. But this is... This is what false gods and false religion always demands. It always demands that you figure out some way to barter with God. You've got to figure out something extravagant to do to get God's attention. You've got to figure out something you can sacrifice to appease God. In fact, and I'll end with this story. There was a missionary in Sudan years ago. His name was Dan McClure. He did medical missions in Sudan, and uh, he... Most of the people there were uh, pagans, kind of animistic, mythical, mystical religion. And he saw several of the tribesmen there through his medical mission who came to faith in Jesus. And he told the story that on one night... One of the fathers, one of the tribesmen came rushing to his medical clinic with his son. His son had gone fishing and had been bitten by a a puff adder, a poisonous snake while he was fishing. And so the father comes into the clinic to get attention, medical attention for his son, this father who's come to trust in Jesus. And so Dan McClure begins to work with his son. And the father sits down and says that he's going to pray to God and that he's going to trust God to take care of his son. Well, there were several other natives there who were waiting for treatment and and they began telling this dad that he needed to go get one of the family goats and sacrifice the goat and offer the blood of the family goat on the altar there in the city and that maybe their local deity would see the blood of this goat and he would spare his son. And Dan McClure made the point of how it struck him when that father looked at those other natives and said no we rely only on the blood of jesus now. well that's a good thing to remember in this story. this guy's doing he's he's offering anything he can, sacrificing anything he can, hoping that will appease the gods and earn the god's favor. we don't need anything like that anymore. god's favor has been fully won through the blood of christ, right? so we're not trying to find something else that will turn god away. if you are in christ, God's wrath that is rightly due you for your sins has been fully, completely satisfied. Nothing else needed. Okay, so that's the story of 2 Kings 3. Any closing questions before we dismiss? Anything unclear? All right. Back into 2 Kings. Good to be back in the study. So Lord willing, back in 2 Kings 4 next week. So let's pray and we'll dismiss.